is the Old Testament obsolete? <laughs> last week we had a one sentence sermon. Remember last week? It was one sentence. This week could be a one word sentence. Is the Old Testament obsolete? Yes. There's your, um, there's your sermon for the week. I will um, add a few thoughts if you allow me. Beginning with um, Romans chapter 7, verses 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, my sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. I realize that to call the Old Testament obsolete uh, could be seen as fighting words. So if that's you, just let me, with the miracle of technology and the assistance of my friend Joe, prove to you from the text that what I'm saying is not only not heretical, it is resolutely biblical because the word old in the original Greek manuscript actually is obsolete. It's technically obsolete. The Old Testament should be known as the Old Covenant. In the Bible translation journey, our Bible translators changed the word covenants to testament. So the very phrase Old Testament, New Testament is almost a made up phrase. It's almost a construct of the, call it pre-modern textual criticism process that brought us the Bible as we know it today. The Old Testament, the Old Covenant is obsolete. Now, if you've spent much time in church, perhaps you grew up in church, you might um, have the following question ringing in your mind, but didn't Jesus himself say that he didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it? That is indeed what he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. So what did Jesus mean when he said he came to fulfill the law? The Greek term translated fulfill is used by both Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount as well as Luke in his recitation of Jesus' synagogue message. In both instances, the term means to bring to a designated end. Jesus did not come to abolish, as in destroy, the validity of or undermine the credibility of the law. Jesus came to bring it to a designated end. If the law were a homework assignment, he was completing it. If the law were a speech, he was concluding it. If the law were a plane, he was landing it. This was his way of saying God's conditional, temporary covenant with Israel was coming to an end. The intended from the beginning end. When God established his covenant with Israel, he set a timer. According to Jesus, the time had run out. But the law wasn't just ending, the law was being fulfilled through him. Dr. John Piper puts it this way, Jesus was not just another member in the long line of wise men and prophets, he was the end of the line. I love that. 
the end of the line. To be sure, still quoting Piper here, many instructions and rules and religious practices and rituals from the Old Testament are no longer to be practiced, but this is not because these practices and rules were wrong, but because they were temporary and were pointing forward to the day when Jesus Christ would fulfill them and thus end them. The coming of Christ did not abolish them, but it did make them obsolete obsolete. There's that word again. Perhaps an illustration will help. If you had an overwhelming amount of debt and wanted to rid yourself of, that you wanted to rid yourself of, one option would be to declare bankruptcy. In that case, your obligation would not be fulfilled, just removed. But if someone came along and paid off your debt, the obligation would be fulfilled and the burden of fulfilling that obligation would be removed as well. Jesus fulfilled, as in ended, the necessity of the Jewish law. Just as you don't abolish a home by completing its construction, just as you don't abolish a flight plan by landing a plane, just as you don't abolish a homework assignment by completing the assignment, Jesus did not abolish the law when he fulfilled it. But in fulfilling it, he made it obsolete. Again, that term. Heck, John Piper used it as well. My point, I'm as smart as John Piper. No. My point, why do we insist on equating Jesus' new covenants with the fulfilled and now obsolete old covenant. Doing so makes our apologetic, our approach to sharing and defending our faith far more complicated than it needs to be. Most evangelicals feel the need to defend the entire Bible, including God's temporary covenant with Israel in order to defend Christianity. Why? Because of our time-honored tradition of mixing, matching, and equating what God clearly separated. Andy Stanley here is speaking of mixing Old Testament covenants into a New Testament context. It doesn't help that both covenants are bound together for our convenience. The majority of people I've talked to who've abandoned their faith have lost faith in Jesus because they lost confidence in the Bible. Which part of the Bible? You guessed it. The part that doesn't apply to or include us, the Old Testament. Once they could no longer defend the historicity or inerrancy of the entire Bible, they found their entire faith to be indefensible as well. That's tragic. It's tragic because, as we'll discuss later, Christianity predated the Bible by hundreds of years. There were thousands of Christians long before there was a Bible. The Bible did not create Christianity. It's the other way around. That's an extended quote. I was going to read you more. In fact, I was tortured deciding what sections to read to you because this book is just so powerful and I believe important. I'm speaking of irresistible, rediscovering the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. This is written by Andy Stanley, okay? Not some heretical wingnuts, you know, marginalized weirdo from the hinterlands who, you know, has very strange views on the Bible and Jesus' mission. This is Andy Stanley, the pastor of one of the largest churches in the world, well-respected, absolutely orthodox, okay? And this is his book, and I recommend it to you. Irresistible. If you want to dig deeply into the questions that surround this question, this is the book for you. I love that Stanley says Jesus is the end of the line for the old covenant. The house is built, the plane is landed, the debt is paid. Not just going to leave you there, though. Here's how to live in light of that. So in light of the fact that Jesus has landed the old covenant's plane, in light of the fact that the Jewish scriptures are now rendered obsolete because 
of what Jesus did and who Jesus is. In light of that, here are some ways in which you might consider living. First, you might consider living like you are now dead to legalism. I find this in verse 4 of our text, Romans 7, verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, my sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. The first word here is important, likewise. He is comparing what he's about to say to a marriage. So in the earlier part here of Romans chapter 7, he says, look, if you were married and then your spouse died, you are now free to be married to another without incurring the consequences of the sin of adultery. So likewise, okay, in the same way that if your spouse dies, you are now free to marry again, you in Christ have died to the old covenant. Because Jesus died, and you are in Jesus if you are one of his people, because he died, you have now died to the old covenant, so you can now marry Jesus and his new way. Likewise, you are dead to the law through the body of Christ. So next time you bump into someone, they might be a well-meaning someone, who, um, let's put it nicely, encourages you to abide by a rule or a regulation from the Old Covenant, from the Jewish Scriptures. The right response, the necessary response, the correct response to someone who tries to invite, let's use the kind word, you to abide in an Old Testament regulation is to say to them, I'm dead to that. I'm dead to that. I wish I had known this when I was 17. Can anybody relate? Have any of you ever been bossed around by somebody with a Bible and not quite enough knowledge? Right? I mean, all through my teenage years. This is one of the most distasteful, disgusting things about modern Christianity. That we have taken Old Testament concepts, brought them into a so-called Christian worldview, and in blending the two, have wreaked untold havoc. I have one word for you. The Crusades. Study the Crusades and you will see that it was well-meaning so-called Christians who embarked on those Crusades because they looked to the Old Covenant and saw that God had authorized His people to cleanse entire people groups from the future promised land. And so they thought, well, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If he did it then, it's okay for us to do it now. And on and on and on it goes. Next time someone comes to you with an Old Testament regulation, hear me now, church, say it with me. I'm dead to that. Right? I'm dead. I'm dead to that. And while we're on the subject, because I care about you, let me ask you a follow-up question. Um, What other old ways, habits, or mindsets do you need to remind yourself that you are now dead to in Christ? I realize I'm stepping off the subject here for just a moment, but I'm stepping off the subject for pastoral reasons. Can you relate? Don't wave at me, but perhaps you are stuck in an old mindset, an old habit, an old way of being in the world that you know, I don't even need to convince you, you know in your guts that because you have now come to Jesus, you are dead to that way of living, and yet you persist in living that way, even though you know you ought not to. Trying to live in a dead habit is what I like to refer to as zombie living. All right, so simple pastoral pithy point, no more zombie living, you're welcome. 
You'll remember that one, right? There's, I love you. There's a chance that you have been guilty of zombie living this past week. Now, this does not mean that Jesus doesn't love you. But if you had a kid who was insisting on living in death, wouldn't you want to correct them? Wouldn't you want to help them? Wouldn't you, it wouldn't stop you from loving them. In fact, it would cause your love for them to pour out of you in the hopes of restoring them to life rather than death. Let's, uh, let's decide as a people to quit it with the zombie living. It's newness of life for us. Somebody say amen. That's your destiny. That's your heritage. That's your inheritance. That's your right, friend, to live in newness of life. So listen, first time this week, you notice zombie living beginning to creep its way back into your life. Rebuke it in Jesus' name. Rebuke it and and stop it. In the words of verse 4, Likewise, my brothers, my sisters, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that, here's the point, you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. In the Greek here, this is, um, as usual, even better. So that you may be becoming to another. Isn't that beautiful? Do you ever feel guilty like a pastor tells you that you belong to Christ, but you don't feel like you've quite locked that relationship down? Anybody ever feel that way? Like you're like, I don't know, I haven't got it locked down. Okay, so let the be becoming part comfort you this week. Okay, you are be becoming so that you may, this is an opportunity you have now to be becoming to another. I want to invite you to consider living like point number two, you are becoming something new. Something new. You are becoming someone who belongs to Jesus, the risen King. That's the point of the second half of verse 4. You are, beco- you are invited now to be becoming someone who belongs to the risen King. I figure if you're going to belong to anyone, it might as well be to the one who conquered death. Wouldn't that be like a... That would be a good identity to stamp yourself. I, I belong to, what team are you on? I'm, on? I'm on the team of the one who conquered death. Right, this is the beauty, the miracle, the, it's hard to believe, I know it, but the, the power of the Jesus story, that God became a man in Christ. That Jesus was the God-man, fully God, fully man, walking around in space-time. I know I just lost half of you watching online. Don't worry, stick with us. Eventually, this story will come to life in your heart because it's true. Even though you may not believe it in this moment, this is what happened. God became a man. Jesus was fully God and fully man. Okay, really ate food, really had friends. In his ministry years, really reached out to the downtrodden, the oppressed, the broken, the dispossessed, those who did not belong. Called them friend, reached out and touched them, healed them. The stories in the gospel are so encouraging. If you haven't read the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in a while, let me encourage you as your pastor to maybe pay them a visit. It is pa- All Jesus does is hang out with people and heal them. He gets tired, he goes away, he takes a break, he eats some food, he goes back, he hangs out with people, he touches them, he heals them. He preaches a few powerful sermons here or there, but mostly he's a traveling healer and exorcist. And he gives people what they cannot get for themselves, wholeness. And this Jesus, this God-man, this good man, eventually ends up in the fullness of time according to his Father's will, pinned to a Roman cross between two thieves to die. Why? Because it is a truth of the universe 
that we broke the world. I preached about this last week, that sin is real. I know you don't like admitting that sin is real, but every time someone sins against you, in your reaction, your indignation, you prove that you know that that sin is real. Sin is real. Okay, we not only broke the world in the first sin of our parents, Adam and Eve, but we continually break the world in our rebellion against God. We know the right thing to do and we don't do it. Why? Because we're sinful. It's something we have inherited from our first parents. And this is a problem because God is holy, meaning he's without sin, absolutely. He can't tolerate it in any form. Because he's also just, he must punish it. This is a problem. God created humanity to be his friends forever. That's why you exist, friend. To be, isn't that nice to know? You exist to be God's friend. Somebody say hallelujah. Right? You, you exist to be God's friend. But you have this sin problem that keeps you separated from God. This is why most of the people you know who don't know Jesus are mostly miserable most of the time. Why? Because they have an inbred <coughs> wiring to be connected to the God of the universe who made everything that is including them. And yet they are separated from him because of their sin. The beautiful story of Christianity is that God did not leave us alone, but he sent his son, Jesus, to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. The penalty of sin is death. Okay, very clearly from its earliest days when it shows up in the human story, the wages of sin is death, meaning every time sin comes in, something has to die. You know this, the last time someone sinned against you relationally, what happened to your relationship? That relationship died. The wages of sin is death. Now, God here has a problem because he's created the human race to be his friends. And yet their sinfulness requires their death. So it's kind of a conundrum. Because if you destroy the whole race, then why did you create them in the first place? And so instead of destroying us, consigning us all to annihilation forever, what does he do? He makes his son pay the price. And you'd think, how could one man pay the penalty of the sins of the world? Well, this is not just a man who's hanging on the cross. It's the God-man. If you believe the story, he's the Logos. He's the spoken word of God. He's the means by which God framed the universe. This is poetic. We see the framer of the universe hanging on the tree in his actual physical universe, bearing the existential pain of the world as the Father places on him the iniquities of us all. And Jesus Christ suffers and dies in your place for your sin. He pays the penalty. The debt has not been sent into receivership. Friend, the debt has been paid. And because Jesus was fully God and fully man, he lay in that tomb not forever, but only for three days. That very first Easter Sunday morning, what did he do? You know the story perhaps? He rose again, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. And in his resurrection, he ushers in a whole new way to be human. And that way is available to you today if you will but ask, Jesus, come into my heart. Make me yours. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Begin teaching me from this day forward what it means to learn to love, serve, follow, obey, and enjoy you all the days of my life. Friend, that is the gospel. That is the story of what Jesus did for you. And because he did that, here's the point. You live different. It's not you ought to. It's not you should. Okay, hear me now. Because he did this, you now live different. Verse 4, part C, in order that we might bear fruit to God. This is so powerful in the original, in order that we should be fruit carrying. I love this so much. Okay, I want to invite you to begin living, point number three, 
Like you're not meant to be moral or good, but you are meant to live in such a way that you create spiritual fruit that you carry to God. Big difference. You're not primarily meant to be moral or good. We often get hung up on that. You are meant to be someone who should be fruit-carrying to God. So, can we catch, do you think? Should we be risky? Well, maybe I'll come down and pass them out. So, imagine if um, you were allowed to carry that fruit to God. So, that would be love. That would be joy. That would be peace. Yes, an avocado is a fruit. Matt, that'd be patience. The banana is um, looking a little old, Ted, but maybe you can make banana muffins with it. Patience. I'll give this one to Becky. Kindness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Oh, I love you, Steve. Goodness. Three strawberries. Gentleness. So three of you can actually get these. Ready? Gentleness. 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 And three grapes. Self. Con. Brian. Bitten. Troll. So think of the difference. I mean, I hope you're shouting glory in your heart because you know where this is going. The fruit of the Spirit is not just something that you have kind of existentially in your heart that you never think about. Rather, it is a fruit that you have that you then carry to God. You should be carrying your kindness to God, that you should be fruit carrying, not just, I mean, somebody shout in this house, not just fruit having, but fruit carrying. Doesn't it change the whole image? Love is not just a feeling. It's a burden. It's heavy. It has a weight to it, and you carry it to God. Joy is not just an emotion. It has a physical presence and reality to it. It is something that you can carry with you and you ought to take it to God. Make some love. I said it. Make some joy. Make some peace. Make some patience. Make some kindness. Make some goodness. Make some faithfulness. Make some gentleness. Make some self-control and then carry it home to Jesus. That's what your life is meant to be about. Zinger after zinger after zinger in this section of the sermon. Are you making money or are you making fruit? Somebody ought to clap. Somebody ought to clap. Are you making money or are you making fruit? Look, you may be a banker, but God help you. You better live like you're a farmer. That'll change your whole darn life right there. You're welcome. I love you. 
Okay? You may be a lawyer. You ought to live like you're a farmer. Oh, I love this sermon. Thank you, Lord, for your kindness. I don't even need to say that again. I mean, woo! Let's just go home. Let's just go home. Put another way, point number four, stop living like you used to. Verse five. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Oh God, I love this point. Hear me now. A law-bound life brings forth constant death. You see it there in the text? i got to read it again because it's so unbelievable. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to do what? To bear fruit for death. A law-bound life brings forth constant death. And here's what's, I mean, this should be mind-blowing. I believe that applies to the Mosaic law and the law that most of your friends obey, which I like to call the me-first law. (laughs) Again, you're well, come on now. (laughs) Both create constantly growing death. Have you ever heard somebody say, "Uh, why can't I ever seem to get my life on track? Wave at me if you ever had somebody say this to you. Okay, they might seem very successful, like their life is all together. Why can't I ever seem to get my life on track? Woo! Because you're living by the wrong laws. Most of your friends are living by the law of me first. It's the wrong law. And if you live by that law, it brings forth constant death. Let me invite you again pastorally here, taking one step away from the centrality of the text, to invite, let me invite you to examine your life. Here's what I want you to check. By what rules are you actually living? I think if you ruthlessly examine your life, you may find that there are areas in your life where you're actually inviting death in without even really being aware of it. Take a look. Instead of a living death, let me invite you to start living point number five, a but now exempted kind of life. I get this out of verse six. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. But now. That'd be a good t-shirt, but now. But now. What area of your life do you need to apply that radical ethic to? I used to be self-oriented, but now, in Christ Jesus, I am learning to give my life away. I used to be worried about death and suffering to the point that I spent most of my time acting like my own God, doing everything I could to try and control everything I could to try and mitigate risk as much as possible. But now I am learning to trust God to be God, not me. I mean, friends, fill in the blanks. Would you be brave and tell me that you think you fit somewhere on this spectrum? Is there anyone here who would admit it? Right? Me too. Me too. So, so, so root it out. 
Jesus didn't set you free so you could stay a slave. He set you free so you could be his slave. More on that in a minute. You've been released. You know what the word released here in verse 6 means? It means exempted. Did you ever get exempted from something? And it was a moment to celebrate? Like, you don't have to write the final exam. Hooray! You don't have to get that inoculation. Celebrate! Right? Whatever, right? You ever been exempted from anything? It's a great moment. You have been exempted in Jesus. You've been exempted from the law. You don't have to obey it. Here's the good and beautiful point. Legalism, celebrate it. No longer holds you captive. So look, the degree to which you are allowing legalism to continue to restrain you is the degree to which you are allowing yourself to live a miserable life when you should really be happy all the time. Why? Because Jesus has set you free. I don't know why anybody would persist in legalism seeing as Jesus died to exempt them from it. Okay, simple point. Again, it's, it's jugular after jugular after jugular today. Um, what area of bondage in your life do you need to walk out from under today? Just do it. What, Todd, is that simple? Yeah, it's that simple. Jesus already paid the price. He has set you free. So you are now free to obey him rather than yourself. So walk, risk, walk out from under it today. Stop living like a prisoner. Start living like, point number six, a free slave who, point number seven, walks in the new spiritual way, not the obsolete written one. And worship team, you can join me because I'm almost done. I know it's a bit of an anachronism, free slave, and I know that especially in today's charged environment, even using that word is untoward, I get it, but it's literally the word here in the text, it's the word in the Greek, it's the word in the English, it means it. And the meaning here is that you are now set free to be Jesus' servant, to be his slave, to be his doulos. Okay, I've said it before, maybe you'll be hearing me say it here for the first time. We are the servant race. Was it Dylan who said it? You gotta serve somebody? It's the truth. So you can serve yourself and live a life that breeds constant death, or you can serve Jesus and walk in newness of life. The choice is yours. We get this out of verse 6, part B. So that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Okay, let me uh, Greekize this here for you for a second. Here it is with some of the original um, translated more directly into English. So that to be saving us in newness of spirit and not in the obsoleteness of the written code. Seems like we have a pretty clear binary choice here. Free slaves of the new spirit way or dead people making more death because that's the way it's always been. Okay, free slaves of the new spirit way or dead people making more death because that's the way it's always been. Have you ever noticed a generational curse working its way out in a family? Yes, you have. And why do families persist in dysfunction generation after generation after generation? Because that's the way it's always been. Because the people in that family are worshiping the wrong God. They are on the throne of their life. And when you put seven people on seven different thrones, what do you have? Constant infighting. Small G God battling small G God for supremacy. 
They're worshiping me first. That's the law that they're following. And they are following a law that breeds constant death, which is why generation after generation, you may come from such a family. You see nothing but death and destruction. Come to Jesus today and begin a new generational line. Whoa, a generational line of freedom, a generational line of righteousness, joy, peace in the Holy Ghost, a generational line of farmers who carry fruit home to Jesus. Dead or alive, old or new, how do you want to live? I think the answer is um, pretty clear. The Bible told me so.